Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of At War, the podcast series by the Conflict Law Center at the Research Society of International Law. Today we will be discussing all things nuclear and we are pleased to be joined by Ms. Sitara Noor. Sitara is a, is a senior research associate at the Center for Aerospace and Security Studies Islamia, uh, Islamabad and her area of expertise is nuclear and regional security issues. Thank you for joining us, Sitara. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, so, Sitara, why don't we start by uh, discussing um, one of your most recent piece in which you've uh, referred to the Russia, the ongoing Russia-Ukraine crisis as a global nuclear disorder. Uh, you know, we, we've been used to uh, reading about how nuclear weapons act, at, act as a deterrent. Uh, they act as a stabilizing force. Some new real scholars also argue that. So could you please uh, expand a bit on why you, why you state that we have a disorder emerging? Uh, so if we look at the global nuclear order, uh, it is in a kind of a state of disarray for quite some time now. And I think some of the elements that we have been witnessing even before the, nu uh, the Ukrainian war, some of the elements probably has been expedited because of the, the start of war. And uh, the when I talk about the disorder, I think I'm looking at three important elements. First and foremost, uh, I think it's the centrality of the nuclear weapons that has come into the debate once again. And uh, the nuclear order was premised on the fact that uh, there would be, I mean, as per the NPT, there was five nuclear weapon states and the rest of the countries entered into a grand bargain and, uh, you know, decided not to acquire nuclear weapons. But yeah. that premise probably uh, is somewhat shaken by the war itself because uh, the idea of deterrence, which was very central to the overall uh, nuclear order uh, is on shaky grounds, perhaps because uh, the global, uh, the security umbrella guarantees or the security guarantees that have been extended to different countries. Countries are questioning that as a result of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So how much that security guarantee is, you know, strengthened or should be taken on the face value or the countries actually should uh, acquire nuclear weapons for themselves. And in that regard, I think... <clears throat> Most uh, uh, important countries to look at would be Japan and South Korea, where this debate on acquiring nuclear weapons or how strong the U.S. security uh, extended deterrence works for them uh, probably were under question even before the war. But I think this debate has uh, become more prominent after the war. And uh, the second second thing is uh, the second thing which I uh, I look at it uh, in the perspective of uh, the Ukrainian-Russian war is. Uh, uh, the threat or the risk of a nuclear taboo being sabotaged or the possibility of nuclear weapons actually being used in a crisis. As uh, we look at war, perhaps the chances are very, very remote as we see how the war is developing. But still, this is something we cannot completely rule out considering how war is developing. Right. Although it is in the interest of all the actors not to, you know, lead up to that situation, but... Uh, <clears throat> The very fact that uh, the, so, uh, the the Russian president threatened or uh, you know put the nuclear weapons at an high alert at the very beginning of the war, perhaps that this is where I think I see a state of disorder even over there as well. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, uh, the risk of uh, nuclear leading it up to escalating to the nuclear level are very very minute, and uh, as per some of the U.S. officials, it's less than one percent. Uh, but even still, the risk. As soon as you put the nuclear weapons on the high alert, the risk of accidental uh, escalation cannot be ruled out completely. Absolutely. And the, the third element within whole debate, I think, is the risk to the non-proliferation or the arms control agreements, which some of them are already in place. But the US and Russia had been the main leading actors who were leading the debate on the nuclear non-proliferation and the arms control. And... Uh, I think some of the treaties which has already uh, seen their demise, for instance, the ANF Treaty or the Ballistic ABM Treaty by the US. So this trend is actually going on. And this is where I see there is a state of disorder. In the right. world. No, it's uh, some very interesting points you mentioned. I was especially interested in what you said about the the, the nuclear umbrella or the uh, provided by the US or the lack thereof. Um, and you know when this when this crisis started, this was a question a lot of people started bringing up. With, and even though a lot, there were some factual inaccuracies, but the fact is a lot of people kept saying, "Oh, if Ukraine had not given up their nuclear weapons, even though they were, I think, Soviet 
weapons mm-hmm. but but this is something a lot of people have been speaking about online and and in opinion pieces and when you um and also what you said about japan and um uh, south korea i also think what what about taiwan and china mm-hmm. you know maybe china looks at it as a test case okay so these are how far they they can probably view the russian experience um as a as a litmus test to see how far they can push the push the lines before the us or their allies respond uh but another thing which i um i, I read in your article was how russia resorted to nuclear brinkmanship mm-hmm. and how um you know because of it uh it did gain some some of it uh, some of its objectives but I, i i want to ask you did russia really gain its objectives because you know even a, a few a few days back there was a statement that oh we are uh, we are putting our nuclear arsenal on high alert this was said in the beginning as well but the war is going on the west continues to provide nato countries continue to provide uh, uh ukraine with weapons so is is the nuclear brinkmanship working is like the threat you there's this phrase that you use uh, escalate to deescalate is that really working for russia or not not so much uh so you see when we talk about escalate to deescalate this is where uh this is russia's official policy that have been uh we have seen in various documents and the official statements as well uh so i think when russia talks about escalate to deescalate they are probably referring to the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons because they do have the first use option as well right uh but if you look at would this situation lead to or would this lead to actually a sta- uh, position where you know weapons would be used or what is the point of russia's brinkmanship in the first place uh, so i think the first and primary objective for russia uh, to you know signal that was uh, primarily pushing away the new uh, the us and the nato's direct involvement right as far as that objective is concerned perhaps they have uh, achieved it to a sen- to a certain extent sure. uh, because uh, uh despite the risks or despite uh so much talk about that there might be a no fly zone being imposed but that did not happen right. because that would have been a declaration of war uh from the nato side so th- this did not happen in the ukraine and we still see that there is tacit uh you know support to the ukraine and uh, there is material and money and um, ammunition all sorts of uh, support is being uh, offered to the ukrainian government but there is still no direct involvement from the nato side or from the us side more uh, active involvement i would say uh, so perhaps this is where russia to an extent has achieved the this uh, the objective of you know pushing them back or right. putting the risk of uh, the threat of nuclear weapons up front at the very beginning uh, but as i say it's an evolving situation we we are uh, it's an evolving situation and uh, the risk of escalation through miscalculation or uh, you know the different reasons which could become uh, leads to some escalation can't be completely ruled out but as far as the situation now is concerned as i said uh, it's an evolving situation and uh, both countries both sides are holding on to the grounds where they had started off so we'll see right mm-hmm. and speaking of miscalculation so let us use that to um, narrow down to uh, to pakistan and our immediate region um, a few months back there was the so called brahmos incident um, uh, before we go on to uh, the analysis of that would you like to share with our audience what that incident was uh so you see on march 9 2022 a supersonic uh, object flew into pakistan as we see in the news reports and uh, later on icpr gave a press briefing on that and uh, that turned out to be an indian missile which flew over uh, around 124 kilometers inside pakistani territories at the height of uh, about 4000 kilometers right and uh, so this is one of uh, this is first of its kind incident which raised so many speculations and so many questions and i think there are so many questions uh from the pakistani side and all those are valid questions i think and i also would want to uh see how india responded the indian response came two days later and uh, in the statement that they offered two days after the pakistan's uh, icpr presser they gave this vague sort of statement in which they said like uh, there was this uh, accident launch during uh, routine maintenance and that was about it they did not offer uh, any explanation whatsoever and uh, i think the it's a very very significant and serious incident uh, for a number of reasons uh, first and foremost i think it is important to analyze this incident in the broader context uh, you you even mention in your piece that this had the potential to spark a nuclear 
conflict it certainly can yeah. and uh, why i say that i mean it's it's not to overstate something but i think the incident nature of incident it's such it is also important not to understand underst- understate the significance of incident of this kind uh, that too between two nuclear weapon states who are whose bilateral relations are at their lowest yeah. uh, there is an active uh, uh, conflict situation uh, or you know uh, contestation on the territory and uh, there is a geographical contiguity as well yep. so there are a number of factors which make this case particularly very unique and particularly very concerning and uh, as i said it's also needs to be seen in the broader perspective uh, i think uh, if we look at what is the current situation between the two countries just a week before indian navy's uh, submarine was detected in yep. pakistan's exclusive economic zone yep. uh this is this is again something uh violation of uh, the norms and the violation of the you know bilateral uh, understandings and agreements and the territory uh and then lately consistently and steadily india is doing uh away with the, some of the uh, you may say india is speeding up the possibility of if they have to launch you know nuclear Uh, missiles or the conventional missiles for that matter uh, for instance there are uh, india is doing away some of the steps which would slow the process for instance india is moving on to the canisterization of the missiles and in there is uh, could you please elaborate on that for just for our audience what does that mean the canisterization of the missiles uh, you know so basically uh, if if the canisterization basically means india's missile would be in a ready form okay they would be very so they quickly, won't be in an unmated form which uh, no mating and unmating would be slightly different but for the launch purposes i yeah. think uh, this is something which would actually uh, speed up the process okay. way too much as per uh, the other other missiles that are right. there right right so this is this is doing away with some of the steps which would precisely slow the process so mating basically uh, comes in different terms in terms of uh, are the nuclear warheads right attached to that or not right. so as as if now what we know of uh, indian program they do not have uh, the missiles in the mated form but again this is something uh, we are you know taking on the face value and the way india is uh, kind of uh, how uh, for the choice of better words i think the way india is transforming its nuclear outlook is i think concerning and uh, not very hopeful signals are coming from that and the, the second thing apart from the canisterization of the missiles is that uh, india slowly and steadily has diluted its uh, uh, no first use yeah. pledge uh in a sense that uh, there was no absolute nfu in the first place and yeah. whatever form and shape it was there perhaps pakistan uh, did not believe in that because it's just a pledge right uh, but even on the official front whatever form and shape of the nuclear pledge was uh, nfu pledge was there in the india's nuclear doctrine uh, of 2013 uh, 2003 sorry uh, indian official statements are coming to the effect where are where they are doing away with the nfu pledge as well yeah. so no, it means india might actually go for the first use and uh, this is also happening when we are witnessing some of the reports which suggest that india is toying with the idea of a preemptive uh, counterforce strikes right so which essentially means that uh, india might not only just take the uh, counterforce uh, strikes against pakistan's specific targets so these kind of reports and these kind of uh, developments which we witness from the indian side coupled with uh, these kind of incidents where a missile just flies off uh, the indian side and you know lands in the pakistan's territory are extremely concerning because uh, first of all the most important next step should have been india informing pakistan right right away which did not happen india and pakistan has this uh, hotline agreement which is essentially Uh, in place there to you know inform one another of such things happening right. if such an incident happens but this wasn't used and uh, there was no other possible communication and the statement that came from the indian side was absolutely vague and uh, not giving away any information so uh, we do not know as of now was it a safety breach a safety issue or was that a security breach right so there are so many questions which indian leadership has to answer and i think pakistan should not stop 
asking those tough questions and and you know you you speak about building narrative it's so it's so surprising this the sounds that have been coming from india recently uh, even at the height of the the balakot crisis you know our leadership was constantly saying that it, uh, these weapons are political weapons you don't use them you don't talk about them lightly mm-hmm. these are our final resort but when you compare that to some of the uh, some of the statements coming from india i remember someone someone said something to the effect of ye humne holi ke liye nahi rakhe so and so they're basically building that whole narrative and perhaps changing the uh, on their way to changing the uh, their stated nuclear posture as well um but speaking of narratives how would you how would you comment on pakistan's response and restraint so i i want to break this into two parts we had uh, ijaz hadir over for a podcast once and he said that you know whenever you you have a missile coming in you you can either fail safe or fail impotent because you there's no there's no way for you to tell mm-hmm. that you know whether it's a, a it's a, a nu- it has a nuclear warhead or it's a conventional weapon precisely uh so in the in that context would you think how would you rate pakistan's restraint but also uh, when speaking about pakistan's response do you think we could have done more to highlight this incident i remember when balakot happened like all uh, the indian press and all indian media went on and on about how pakistan had violated the end user agreement by allegedly um, using our f16s in 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 an operation against india but on our side uh, there a lot of people have felt that their response was very muted perhaps we you know we often complain how pakistan is a classic case of bad se badnam bura mm-hmm. uh, do you think we could have this, we missed a, an opportunity here to do the same to and, and they've actually done something you know even if they say it's a mistake um my understanding is all these all such weapon systems have a lot of fail safes they are multi uh, it's not like you know uh, you press the button on your car even when you know you you know all these push start uh, vehicles that are in the market now even for them you have to press the brake and then press the button when the once the car starts so it's very unimaginable that a, a nuclear capable missile just you know randomly accidentally launched into your adversary's territory and you know they're like oh it's just just a mistake and very muted response from from them and from us so what would you say to that uh, so you see uh, first of all as i said in the beginning this is something very very serious and uh, it speaks of incompetence from on the indian side and uh, whether it's a safety breach or it's a security lapse it's an incompetence and incompetence leads to escalation this is as serious as that right right and uh, you are very right that uh, i mean pakistan's response i mean of course one cannot suggest that the response should have been uh, something kinetic in nature or something shooting down the missile or because you see the flight time is hardly 7 minutes between yeah. the two countries right so there is no uh, possibility of this is these are the risks that we talk about all the time that yeah. uh, the because of the uh, geographical contiguity you do not have much time to you know uh decide the incoming missile uh, which sort of in missile is that is it nuclear or te- uh, uh, you know conventional or just a random missile mistakenly yeah. flying inside our territory Absolutely. right so the broader uh, since the broader uh, atmosphere was uh, not very uh, escalatory at that time i mean we were not in active hostility at that time so perhaps pakistan uh, did act rationally by not you know putting their missile on the high alert in response or the way are we suggest we would do in case of a in case of an event of war or things like that but having said that i think still pakistan's uh, response could have been more forceful i think we did not uh, just imagine just flip it on the other side had it been some pakistani missile flown into the indian side all hell would have broken loose Absolutely, and yeah. not just in indian side but and across the world yeah. right but uh, response was uh, not there were questions but there was no uh, there were no uh, serious questions asked from the indian side yeah. india got away we may say that india got away but just by just issuing a statement that it was a uh, missile erroneously fired during a routine uh, maintenance and yeah. that's about it absolutely and, and it- this also comes i think india uh, got off the hook primarily primarily because of when we you know take a step back and look at the broader security situation how india is towing the line of the united states in terms of uh, offering uh, becoming the strategic partner 
in the Indo-Pacific, the broader Indo-Pacific security scenario. But I think regardless of that, this is something which is very serious for the regional security. And uh, any country should show some responsibility. And as I said in the the beginning, that... uh, it, Pakistan should not stop asking those hard questions, regardless of uh, how much noise we can make and how much you know uh, effective they are. But I think we continuously should, because this is a matter of uh, security, of not just for Pakistan, but I think of the entire region. Because, as I said, incompetence would lead to escalation. Absolutely. If not this time, probably in future. Yeah. So if this incompetence continues on the Indian side, uh, this is a recipe for disaster, definitely. Absolutely. And you know, I remember in back in 2010 or 2011, there was an article about how um, the it was in the Atlantic, the ally from hell, mm-hmm. maybe that was the title. And through and from that point onward, you've you've you you've been seeing this consistent narrative. Oh, uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons are at are a risk. Pakistan's nuclear weapons might fall into into the wrong hands. And in the most recent um, uh, report on nuclear safety protocols, I think Pakistan was the most improved state. Mm-hmm. In some areas, we've even outranked India. Yes. But against this whole this whole uh, the the vacuum of narrative with regards to you know presenting ourselves as a responsible state and presenting India as an irresponsible state. And, you know, on that note, you you uh, wrote wrote a piece a while back uh, titled India's Radioactive Bazaar. Um, in even when I think about that, you know, we we saw one, one or two statements here and there. Uh, but, you know, our global narrative building exercise, um, you know, it, people are walking around with uranium as if, you know, you'd walk around with a with a bag of onions or tomatoes. And if, again, if had that happened in Pakistan, all hell would have broken loose. So do you think we also missed a beat on that front? And also, if you could, um, some people also added that, you know, uh, Pakistanis are just fear-mongering. It's just like raw uranium or you need to process it a lot till it gets to a point where, at, where it can be used in a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. So do you think we, we are actually fear-mongering and there was nothing to worry about? Uh, so you see, I would address this question uh, not from the political front, but more from the technical side. Right. And this is where I think we can differentiate between the fear-mongering and uh, what actually is needed to be done in that regard. Because uh, it's we the, the way Pakistan is being blamed, you know, everything is wrong. We I think we should take a more uh, serious uh, look at uh, how and, you know, what India need, what needs to be done in India and what's wrong in India system in the first place and uh, so i'll purely look at it from the political uh, sorry the technical perspective why because uh, first of all this is again as i said uh, in the previous uh, question this is something definitely serious and uh, if somebody says just brushes it aside by just saying that uh, it's a fear-mongering i think that's not the case because uh, consequences or the repercussions of uh, such incidents leading to something bigger are serious and uh, i mean there can be some serious consequences as a result of uh, that why do i say that first of all i think uh, it's not just one of an incident where indians some of the indians news reporters or for that matter the official statements to the effect that you know it's just raw uranium and nothing to worry about there definitely is need to be worried about why because uh, there are there is a consistent pa- consistent pattern yeah it's not one of an event. There have been reports of uh, uranium uh, being sold in the Indian markets in over the past few years consistently, right? And uh, what does that what does that tell us about India's uh, regulatory system or nuclear management overall? Uh, first and foremost, I think uh, there is it suggests or it indicates that there is a gap in India's material accounting and control system. And material accounting and control system is something, the basic technical requirement every country must have, whosoever develops a nuclear program or has the radioactive material for health, in the health industry or the or the, uh, the other industries as well. Because nuclear material or the radiological materials are not just used for the weapon purposes, but Absolutely. they are they have like various civilian applications as well. Right. And the, the one used in the civilian applications also needs to be protected because... Uh, if they fall into the wrong hands, into the with the people with a malicious intent, uh, they can do a number of things. For instance, creating a dirty bomb out of it, creating, uh, uh, you know, just spreading the radioactivity across, uh, yeah. you know, by using it, detonating it with a conventional uh, bomber, uh, right. 
you know, material. So there are serious consequences if it just loosely, you know, is found here and there. So this definitely is not fear mongering. This definitely needs serious attention. And as I said, the first in uh, the first thing it tells us about India's system is that there is lack in the material accounting and control, because any country, be it India or Pakistan, uh, from uranium mines to the radio, uh, the the reactors or the enrichment facilities, wherever the material goes, there has to be a very strong material accounting and control system so that not an iota of material goes out of regulatory control. So this is the first requirement every country has to fulfill. Right. Perhaps there is, the, the, if material is going missing, perhaps that part is not really strongly taken care of. Yeah. And uh, secondly, there is uh, definitely involvement of some insider, right? There is somebody within the India's nuclear community who is... Uh, you know, kind of involved in this kind of activity because these are not just random materials Absolutely. available off the shelf or, you know, just randomly right. available here in the markets. So definitely there is some involvement in from the insider. So that suggests there is a weakness in India's uh, personal reliability program. Right. The people they have employed are not really checked thoroughly and they are involved with the people where even if they are selling it for the monetary benefit, it might end up in the. It's a control hand. substance. So it's a control substance. And all and all of this is happening at a time when there's an incre ever increasing push for India to be included in the nuclear suppliers group. Yes. And you know when you think of so, I want you to put aside your Pakistani strategic thinker hat and just think as a as as a neutral uh, uh, strategic thinker. Um, we see we see with the Brahmas incident, new India basically got off without a very with with a with a very hollow statement. Um, all these incidents of uranium being sold uh, openly in Indian markets, um, but at the same time, India and the US they are getting closer and closer because of their larger strategic uh, uh, future in the in the Indo Pacific region. Uh, would you say that the US is perhaps making a mistake in the long run? You know, turning a blind eye, if you want to call it that, to towards India's um, mistakes uh so you see uh in the these are i think in the grand scheme of things perhaps uh for the us these are some small irritants or very insignificant events considering uh the strategic objectives and why india is needed as part of uh, you know uh the the india the, the as a net security provider in the us's uh, indo-pacific strategy in containing China or putting, placing India as a net security provider or, uh, you know, a counterweight to China, things like that. Right. The, the, all the talks that we hear about what are the roles and responsibilities. Uh, but these are the things which I think uh, are not only needed, uh, would be required for the US should be pushing. I think this is for India's own sake. These are the things India must, you know, improve and uh, do uh, some work on and some introspection and some assessment within because uh, for anybody else the, the kind of incidents that we have talked about they threaten india's own security as well right you know and as a responsible nuclear weapon state or as a responsible actor at the global stage i think these incidents and the repeated for that matter repeated incidents do not really look good and, and because all of these things are happening in a very short span of time. Yes. Like, you know, these are not, so like one incident happened in 2006, another happened now. All of these things, the Brahmo was the repeated nuclear bazaar incidents. All of these are happening like very, very frequently. So it is worrying. And as you said, um, you know, someone who might be handling it might not be aware from a technical perspective how harmful uranium is or all these other radioactive elements are for the larger population. So that's also a very valid internal security constraint, especially at a time when we are starting to see more and more internal fissures yes. within within Indian domestic politics as well. And you see, uh, because as I said, this is for, apart from the, specifically for the, with regard to the nuclear material, because uh, uh, we, as you rightly stated, that there are internal fissures. There are homegrown terrorist organizations as well. There are people who would want to, you know, take some advantage out of a situation where they can, you know, create some scenario and put the blame on Pakistan. Yeah. That Pakistan is the perpetrator, but the reasons would be very much homegrown. Yeah. So it has ramifications, not just for India, but for the regional security as well. And uh, it is also important for India's image as a responsible nuclear weapon states because, uh, you know, if we 
as i said in the beginning apart from political uh, points or political shots or the c- criticism that we might initiate from the pakistani side i think this is the uh, the global as a responsible state these are the re- responsibilities on india because uh, if we look at india being part of signatory to the convention for physical protection of nuclear material and facilities and uh, it's a 2005 amendment which india has signed and ratified as a as part of that entity india is supposed to have an independent regulatory authority which would ensure that you know these regulations are in place such incidents do not happen and they would basically regulate the entire process but in india's case for instance uh India's regulatory board is part of uh, atomic energy uh, India's uh, regulatory board is part of the atomic energy uh, department of atomic energy okay right so if something goes wrong in the atomic energy department of atomic energy uh, the board being the subset of it cannot point out like you know this is something wrong you need to correct it but india is required to have an independent authority in its function and position which right, right now is not available and then if we look at india is embarking on a very ambitious uh, nuclear energy program there are about 22 uh, reactors operating and there are almost 21 reactors under construction so it's a massive development that and is taking these, place and are these reactors mostly dual use or uh, they are for the energy purposes okay. they are for the energy purposes i mean i'm not even talking about the weapons Aspect, program, which okay, is right. as massive as it can get right right, right? so because these regulations are only for the civilian purposes sure unfortunately india's uh, and for that matter any country's nuclear weapon program is not globally regulated or uh, the country is not answerable to international atomic energy agency for the regulations but it is expected of that country that as a responsible state and for the security of their own citizens they would employ these regulations and they would employ uh, the system they would put the systems in place which would save their own environment and the people and the state overall right. right so as i keep saying that this is important for the regional security of course but this is more important for india's people's own safety because nuclear material or radioactive material just randomly being sold here and there is something really concerning right absolutely and um so uh you spoke about regional stability so again we've uh, moving on again from pakistan to the wider region and we've we've discussed how the us sees india as uh, as a probable counterweight um to china in the indo pacific region for the past decade or so we've uh, read about how the us uh is shifting its some of its attention eastwards i think it was um, hillary clinton who had that statement we are now pivoting to asia and we, we we've seen some manifestation of it the the us china competition mm-hmm. uh in that regard there was a recent um test by the chinese which is called the fops test um you stated in a piece that uh, a lot of people made it a big human cry out of it but you somewhat underplayed it stating this was not a sputnik moment moment everyone was making it out to be um so could before we get into the details of that could you please elaborate on what what fops is uh for the sake of our audience and um what uh, why did you draw a parallel with the sputnik moment uh so first of all you see uh since since the the us pivot to asia or the us's uh, focus on the indo pacific region uh the us and washington's focus on the beijing has increased exponentially and we have been seeing like in various us documents uh the the chinese the china has which originally was perhaps a competitor has now become uh you know more of a more of a, a confrontational tone from the united states side right and this is happening notwithstanding the fact that the if we look at the china's military development and the number of systems that they have or the weapons that they have is far less as compared to the us and russia but still the us focus has been you know definitely very much on the uh, on the chinese development and so the us meltdown over china's purported uh, you know fractional orbital bombardment system or the fops that we uh, call it uh, comes in within that uh, within that broader perspective where anything china does is something taken uh, you know ex- you know stretches beyond the proportion or right. g- gains greater attention than probably it deserves uh, and this was and when the for, uh, financial times story was broke that china did 
conduct a FOPS test. Uh, we see subsequent statements, as you rightly said, said there was massive hue and cry that this is something extraordinary. It was uh, the U.S. General Mark uh, Mark Milley who described this as a Sputnik, something close to the Sputnik moment. Right. And uh, why did I say that it wasn't a Sputnik moment? Primarily because uh, first and foremost, FOPS is not something altogether new. Can you can you also elaborate on what FOBS really is mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of our audience? What is FOBS? So basically, and how is it? Sorry, and how is it different from what we see mm-hmm. in use right now? So basically, FOBS in in the test, China basically combined the two technologies, right? Okay. Uh, when I say uh, the frictional orbital bombardment system, China used a hypersonic glide vehicle. Uh, they combined the two, and uh, as a result of that, they uh, theoretically they flew a nuclear capable missile around the globe okay uh you know yeah and this is this is this is something uh but as i said this is not something which has been done for the fops is not something which has been done for the very first time right the soviet union used this technology or developed this technology in 1970s okay and they didn't did uh, did that primarily against the american safeguards uh, anti ballistic missile system right right but uh, once the missile that abm system was uh, uh, no more there so the soviets also shelved that program right and similarly uh, the americans american air force had the similar system in the form of uh, x37b orbital orbital test vehicle right so this is something as i said is not something because the the sputnik moment was something where i mean the sputnik moment was when soviet union uh, took a major leap uh, in their space development when they sent a satellite into the space uh, when the us and soviet union were in a space race us hadn't achieved that level but soviets did right so so this is not uh, equivalent to sputnik because the us has already done that or the technology already exists right in different forms and shapes and uh, but to the through the chinese credit perhaps uh, or the unsettling part for the united states uh, perhaps justifiably can be because chinese managed to uh, combine the two okay they combined the frictional orbital vehicle through with the hypersonic okay. missile right? right so this probably might be something some sort of unsettling part for the united states but this is again not something which would render american defenses obsolete right why because uh, Americans have this fixed uh, uh, anti-ballistic missile systems placed in Alaska and California, which are essentially there to intercept any missiles coming from the North Korea. Okay. Right. Uh, but that's not about it. These are just one set of systems that the Americans have. Then they have uh, uh, space-based assets uh, which detect uh, which detect the missiles, incoming missiles through the heat signature. So from any side they are coming. they would be detected right. by the us satellite uh, uh systems and uh, then there are sea based system as well which can actually you know detect uh the, the, they have the global coverage and they can cover missiles coming from the any side of the world so the us has that part you know covered uh, and it's not that they suddenly have become vulnerable to the chinese threat and uh, they also have uh, you know some fixed uh, systems within the uh, you know in the very close range of china in the south korea for instance they have the tart missiles placed right. over there so this is not something which which us uh, which renders american defenses obsolete or you know gives them a real push but again if china is trying to do anything which you know kind of uh, there is an uh, technological improvement and what china has right now definitely this is something concerning for the us because if you look at in the broader strategic competition uh, the us china competition is growing in the indo pacific and at the global front and uh, there are many mis- manifestation of that uh, crisis uh, the impending crisis or uh, this greater competition or confrontation in the form of uh, the us statement on taiwan for instance us impatience growing impatience on chinese expansion in the south china sea or uh, the various other uh, objectives that us is pursuing in the region through uh, orcas through quad and so on and so forth 
and i think another another thing could be that the us doesn't really like someone else flexing their muscles i i think i i love this theory by mir shimer who says the us doesn't really want another another power that has what he calls the freedom to roam around mm-hmm. um there was this um there was a piece in um uh, there's an incident mentioned in a book how in 2005 because the us always conducts these freedom of navigation operations in the waters of other countries and um up many countries say don't do it don't do it don't do it but they can't really say anything to the us but i think in 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 the mid 2000s there was an incident when a whole us carrier group was moving along in this in the east china sea maybe or the south china sea and a chinese submarine just popped up in between and it it wasn't so much that it caused a confrontation but to the us it signaled that the chinese were now saying oh this is our territory mm-hmm. so we can respond to you because even if you as you rightly said that if you do um a a complete comparison between the two the us still outpowers absolutely the, uh, china i think mm-hmm. china just inducted their third naval carrier mm-hmm. um last month maybe or this month yeah. but when you the us has been using them for the best part of a century now mm-hmm. uh, so but i think it's it, it could be because the us doesn't really want someone else to be able to flex their muscles and anytime someone says like oh let's let's put an end to that uh you see and uh, if we see how the us china relationship are evolving uh as i said they started off as a competitors but i think the nature of relationship has pretty much become confrontational and uh, that is why the patience is uh, growing out uh, uh, patience is running out basically yeah. on 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 the us side as well as on the chinese side i mean we always say that chinese have been you know uh, employing this is uh, or have been the strategic patience on the chinese side has been you know slowly and steadily they have been you know reaching out to the countries and uh, developing economic uh, relationships uh, but now the us while the better part of the this uh, the 21st century they have been busy in the wars in the middle east and meanwhile china was developing economic relationships through the uh, one belt and road initiative uh, across the region yep and uh, so the now us although they are trying to match up with the the economic incentives but i think china has moved and uh, made its uh, presence in most areas or they have covered most areas already so this is, has become this is something unsettling for the united states yeah. and uh, although chinese uh, have been talking about that they do not have uh, you know they believe in the coexistence and things like that but i think in the indo-pacific region specifically uh in the south china sea specifically the things are you know warming up as we look at it and uh, over the taiwan issue for instance the statements the recent statements that have come from the us side um, and the debate around as you mentioned in the beginning that uh, perhaps china is uh, you know kind of uh, weighing its options that how russian Uh, the the russian invasion in ukraine pans out uh, so there are so many you know uh, point of views on the table uh, but uh, one thing that stand out definitely or one thing that uh, uh, is definitely true for time now is that the us chinese confrontation is very much there right and you know you you spoke about china establishing economic relationship at the same time the us was engaged in all these uh, military operations in the middle east um and now the us and maybe perhaps the western bloc they realize they need to counter that i think just yesterday um, the g7 announced some an initiative to counter the one belt one road mm-hmm. um a massive investment i think close to 600 billion dollars if i'm not wrong but also uh, another thing which china brings to the, to the table i think is stephen walt wrote about this last year that they also lend to countries mm-hmm. but their lending is not uh based in you know some of the global norms that the, the so called global norms that the us has so like you know when imf gives you money or the world bank gives you money they 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 always underpin it with structural reforms political mm-hmm. reforms but china is just lending money mm-hmm. and walt's argument was uh, to countries with authoritarian regimes or with dictators or where democracy really hasn't flourished they might prefer china mm-hmm. to the us mm-hmm. because for uh in the post second war uh, world war era a lot of the countries they when they wanted aid from the us they would resort to what the us was saying in the form of domestic reforms but now china is coming they're like work with us we don't really want you to do any kind of reforms hey, yeah yeah your politics is your matter mm-hmm. here's the money let's develop mm-hmm. and i think that's a very attractive proposition i'm i'm not saying it's the right way to go about thing but that's very attractive to a lot of countries which are not uh, necessarily living up to the ideals of western liberal democracy 
So what would you say to that? Uh, so you see, uh, with regards to the Chinese investment, I think the United States' biggest concern or for that matter, their biggest uh, uh, criticism has always been this uh, issue of transparency on the Chinese side, from the right. Chinese side, right? Uh, they have been arguing that, uh, right, China is investing, but uh, it's a, such an it's not a transparent process at all. The countries who are lending money, who are developing infrastructure and stuff, even there is there is this criticism from the American side or from the Western world largely that, uh, you know, that these are the debt traps and uh, these are the things in the long run would harm the countries, the receiving countries, yeah. right? Uh, but as far as Pakistan is concerned, I think there are multiple reasons why Pakistan relies on the Chinese uh, uh, partnership. Primarily, first and foremost, because uh, these, these the, the relationship has developed into a strategic partnership. Right. Definitely. Right. And uh, China has emerged as a, China has emerged as a reliable partner. And while Pakistan would want to very much uh, develop its relationship with the United States as well, it would not want to do that at the cost of uh, its strategic partnership with the Chinese because uh, not just on the because of the CBAC, but I think uh, the defense and technical assistance that Pakistan has received from China, uh, specifically at the time when the rest of the world, uh, the, the support from the rest of the world was completely missing. Yep. Right. So for Pakistan, I think the Chinese support has been very critical and uh, Pakistan would want to continue to have that support. Uh, but I think uh, as things are warming up in the Indo-Pacific, that space for Pakistan to, you know, uh, maintain its uh, relationship with the, with the US as well as with the China, that space, maneuvering space, I think is shrinking very right. fast. And yeah. Pakistan has to, you know, walk on to that tightrope where they have to, ensured the United States that we are not really, as they call it, falling into the Chinese trap and uh, keeping up, uh, ensuring Chinese as well that, uh, you know, the the CPAC related projects do complete on time because there are various reasons where there is perception that the projects have slowed down, yeah. right? So there are various uh, moving pieces in that regard, but I think for Pakistan, maintaining that neutral position uh, between the U.S., the growing U.S.-China's confrontational relationship, I think uh, countries like Pakistan are more affected in terms of. Uh, but I think, as so far, Pakistan has tried to uh, stay in the middle, stay neutral, and have uh, you know sh given shown this interest, uh, shown shown this intent that we want to maintain the relationship or balance the relationship with both. And I think Pakistan. Uh, it would require political acumen and the strong diplomatic skills, which there is no shortage of in Pakistan, I believe, I trust. But I think uh, this has to be done in a very, very smart manner. And this has to be done in a very, very, you know, uh, timely basis. Right. We do not have the option to lose opportunities and, you know, then kind of try to rebuild that. We have to be very cautious of not losing the opportunities when they come. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to look uh, to look at things through a Pakistani lens. Yeah. So like not not from an American interest lens or a Chinese. Interest yes, precisely. Even when you're looking at CPEC, yes, CPEC is important for China, but it's also important for the, the infrastructure and, and, and other development in Pakistan as well. So I think it's important to not lose sight of that. Uh, one last question. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you said that our maneuvering space is shrinking and in, in light of what's been happening recently ever since, and we, we're going back to where we started from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, um, there was a lot of outcry on social media for the past couple of days on Pakistan, the lack of Pakistan's presence in the BRICS mm -hmm. summit. Would you make, what would you make of that? And do you think that that, that is a sign of China's so-called displeasure with regards to Pakistan? So I think this is uh, very interesting. And as I said in the beginning, we must dig the facts first. And I think... Uh, the foreign office statement just today, which came out just today, is quite telling that uh, before every BRICS summit, China and Pakistan do coordinate with one another in terms of how Pakistan can become part of it or, you know, can benefit. Because Pakistan had been, as a non-party, Pakistan has been participating in the previous summits. Uh, but as per the foreign office uh, information just today, uh, it was Pakistan's participation was blocked by one country. Yeah. So that one country probably uh, is India, considering how this bilateral relationship between the two are uh, going on a negative trajectory, uh, which is unfortunate, unfortunate to the uh, because uh, 
at one side pakistan is attempting to you know uh, reach out to all quarters and reach out to and uh, trying to advocating a more peaceful resolution of the issues and reaching out to uh, or uh, you know stating that pakistan wants good relationship with its all neighbors yeah because uh, if we look at the previous governments or pakistan's recent uh, national security policy when we talk about geo shift to the geo economics yep. the primary requirement of shifting to the geo economics is having good relations with all all neighbors. your neighbors yes and we are struck behind stuck behind uh, in between uh, antagonist india at one head and destabilizing afghanistan on the other and uh, you know at one side there is china and the we are not fully able to utilize the potential of our seas as well so it's a very very problematic situation and uh, as far as pakistan is concerned i think pakistan must continue uh, you know working towards uh, the objectives that we have set for ourselves which essentially means that we want a good relationship with all neighbors but i think uh, the blocking pakistan's participation it's very petty you know yeah. it's it's something uh, it's petty to and especially say especially coming at a time when you know we've been seeing very positive developments with the uh, with these uh, arrests of individuals that india yes. has been asking for yes. so you know and if you this has been a consistent pattern for the past 3 4 years that we we've our our ex prime minister even went so far as to say that okay if you take one step forward we'll take two steps forward yeah. and we have been extending olive branches after olive branches but there it's lack of response is one thing mm-hmm. but the antagonistic response is, is a completely different thing and you know i wonder till till what point can pakistan maintain this that you know uh, it's like you know when uh, you have an issue going on with someone there comes a point when you say okay i can't really keep doing this anymore yeah. so pakistan will eventually get to that point and i think even india because uh, strategic relationships uh, with the united states is one thing but india china pakistan they're all neighbors Uh, and as you mentioned in response to one of the previous questions was uh flight times over here are only 7 <laughs> minutes so uh, you know for 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 a cousin living in 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 a foreign country we can't really have a messapa relationship with people yeah. living right next you can't to. even say goodbyes within the 7 minutes you won't even say be able to say goodbyes and the the the, the both countries would just you know yeah uh, move away from the just you know gone off the face of the earth absolutely because you know and you look at the the population density in this region yeah. the number of people living in this region i think 25% of the world's population is is in is is in the indian subcontinent yeah. and the surrounding areas china mm-hmm. the middle east iran iraq western asia so it's it's very scary but i hope we do get to some kind of political maturity that we are able to resolve this uh, on that note we'll end this conversation thank you so much for joining us it was a pleasure speaking with you uh, thank, thank you, you f- Uh, thank you to all our audience for tuning in and we hope you'll tune in for future episodes as well thank you allah hafiz